You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Welcome to the Mill. Well, Joe Kirkendall is out this weekend and next weekend. He actually married his brother, I believe, on Friday or is it Saturday? So he just did his brother's wedding, which is pretty cool. And then he's off for some family adventure with Erica's family. So he'll be out for two weeks. But don't worry, he's gotten some good people to fill a spot. Uh, I get to fill a spot next week, so hopefully I'm a good spot filler. But yeah, this week though, Matt Ayers, this man right here, is going to be taking over. He's the executive pastor that oversees um, all the mission work in Colorado Springs. So he's the guy that coordinates, works with people, and gets our church plugged in and helping people in this city. And so as he wraps up apologetics and how that applies and how we can apply that in helping people, he is the man to do it, and he has the background to really speak forth what he has to say today. So if you are a new member, real quick, the new member cards are in the back, back table. Please fill that out. Um, Please do not leave without filling that out. If you have any questions... There's plenty of people around that you can ask questions. And next week, it's a four-week series that will start on ecclesiology. And so please come out, which is a study of the church, and we'll have fun with that. So take it away. Thank you very much. Well, it is so good to be here. Uh, This is my first time ever speaking to the Mill Sunday School. So it's an honor, and I'm so glad to join you today. Uh, You know, I'm following the footsteps of some pretty amazing guys here Uh, Evan and Joe both use really big words, and especially Joe, and so I feel like I don't want to put you through that today at all. I'll just try to keep it real simple. That's how my mind works. And, uh, you know, Joe, Joe acts like uh, he really loves uh, outdoor sports and hiking and getting up in the mountains and fishing and running uh, the Jack Quinn Fun Run on Tuesday nights and all this stuff that Joe is used to doing. But he really doesn't like it that much. He just has to do all that stuff to stay in shape so he can lug around all his big commentaries and books for his, you know, just stay in shape to lug that stuff because he's just got this big brain. And, and uh, I love that about Joe. He's one of the most fun guys to get in conversations with. But uh, Evan too, man, if you, if you know Evan at all, I got to work with Evan for a couple years in Global Ministries. And... Uh, so, so for you who have been around for the mill for quite a, quite a while, you remember that he was the associate pastor at the mill, and Evan's one of my favorite people in the world now, but if he doesn't get a chance to read a book before his head hits the pillow at night, then he is cranky the next day, and that Irish temper just rises up. So he's a, but I love that about Evan too, he's just a fiery, passionate guy who loves Jesus that much. So, um, so I'm really honored to, you know, get to wrap up. Uh, our teaching on apologetics. This is one of my favorite topics, and uh, these guys have done an amazing job teeing this up for me. So, um, why don't we uh, do a little review, then we'll talk about something that these guys, uh, I don't think they touched on, but didn't cover too much, is the problem with apologetics today. And then we'll offer an alternative and and see what God's uh, scriptural view maybe of of apologetics and how some things touch on apologetics uh, can impact our lives today. So, so let's do a little review. Who remembers the Greek word for apologetics and its definition? We've got some mics out here, so uh, somebody can, you know, just raise your hand if you know what this is. And we've got some prizes for you today, some really cool prizes. So, 
Mia, Mia. Is it apologia or gia? Yeah. And it's a reason defense or system or idea. A reason defense of a system or idea. Okay, reasons uh, or system for ideas to defend. What are we trying to defend? The faith. Yeah. (laughs) Nice work. All right, so today we got several more of these. This is uh, one of the best... um, the best resources you can have to learn your own system of apologetics and know how to defend the faith is how to read the Bible book by book. So uh, it's one of my favorite authors, Gordon Fee, and this thing will really guide you down a path of uh, reading the Bible the way it's intended to be read, uh, because that's what we really get away from a lot today. So that comes with it, another book, and then there's a new version of scripture out. It's not new scripture, but it's formatted uh, in a different way, and it's called simply the books of the Bible. So we've got these for presence today, and they've taken out all verses and artificial paragraph distinctions, and you actually read the scripture like it was written in the scrolls, so you can read it like a story that unfolds. They've also, instead of organizing Paul's letters from uh, biggest to, or smallest to biggest, you know, in a kind of an arbitrary fashion, They've reorganized Paul's letters and some of the other books in the New Testament so that they're more intuitive, like the order that Paul wrote them in. So, it's really a neat way to read the Bible. Anyway, there you go, Mia. Good work. So, alright, that is a great definition. And uh, that's what we're here to do. We really want to defend our faith in every possible way. And so, uh, today we're going to talk about a whole new way that we haven't touched on in the past three weeks of defending our faith. Um, Okay, so like Mia said, the discipline of defending a position through a system of ideas or reasons to defend our faith. Daniel Grothy reminded us of how important it is uh, to be, to be a certain way, to live a certain way, a transformed way. And uh, if you guys remember this, this was four weeks ago now, so I know it's been a while. But, uh, um, you know, some of these ways he talked about were being grateful and thankful. So who can tell us the book and the chapter that Daniel Grothy keyed in on a month ago? All right, we got one right here. Before one. That's right. All right, nice work. So why don't you, uh, here, can you give her the mic back again? Why don't we go ahead and read those? First Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Um, And uh, because that's really key. I'm glad Daniel led off with those passages. Um, That's going to, that's kind of the, uh, what it really does is it emphasizes what we're going to talk about as we wrap up today in that other way that we can uh, use apologetics to defend our faith. Hold on, I'm not finding it. (laughs) That's all right. No rush. But the Spirit expectantly says that in later times so some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctoral of demons do you want me to keep reading by means of hypocrisy of liars shared in their own consciences as with a branding iron men who forbidden marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created 
to be gratefully shared in by those who have who believe and know the truth. All right. So the gratefulness, the thankfulness comes out in that passage, and it's really describing a way of being and a way of life for us. Now, when he, when he described that, then he gave us two spectrums. He said, we can balance our lives and live where we're really grateful and we're thankful and we recognize the things that God has done for us, the things that God gives us, the way that God loves us. And then he said there was two polar opposites, two spectrums that go out from, from, that, from that place of being grateful and thankful. And who, why don't we just jog our memory here. Let's cue up that first song to describe one of those spectrums. I was walking through the city streets And a man walks up to me and hands me the latest energy drink Run faster, jump higher Man, I'm not gonna let you poison me I threw it on the ground You must think I'm a joke I ain't gonna be part of this system Man Alright, keep going down Alright, so For a book of the Bible what end of the spectrum is this person? Now, it's not exactly right, but, you know, not receiving anything from this world, throwing it away, going off on his own. What, what kind of end of the spectrum is Adam Sandberg there pointing out? Daniel Grothy talked about this. What you got? No? Well, yeah, exactly. And what, so what did he, he kind of gave two categories of that. So what did, he talked about some uh, groups, uh, some groups of monks, some agnostics, some other groups that actually, they lived this type of lifestyle. Um, aesthetic? Aestheticism? Uh, that's exactly it. All right, asceticism. So, good job. What's your name? Michelle, great work. All right, so asceticism is like giving up everything, denying yourself of everything. Um, you know, denying yourself of anything from the world, even, even to the point of sometimes thinking that those things that we experience every day, like a cup of coffee, and that we're used to having in our lives, like we just, you know, you just don't need that. You just put it all aside, and you have the minimum possible to live and survive, and it's just you and the Lord. So that's like an ascetic lifestyle. Okay, so what's the other end of that spectrum here? Let's uh, cue up the next song. This is special what's handed to all my, all my soldiers over there in Everybody right here. What you need to do is be thankful for the life you got, you know what I'm saying? Stop looking at what you ain't got. Start being thankful for what you do got. All right, that's good. Him, so, stop looking at what you ain't got. So what would that, if you're always looking at what you ain't got and you want more, and you think that you deserve more and God's going to give you more, what is that? Yeah, what kind of gospel? It's a gospel that's preached. What is it? You got it? Prosperity gospel. That's it. Nice work. So, 
instead of living at the aesthetic end of the extreme or this idea that we deserve everything and can get it and can fight for it or earn it somehow by our own, on our own work, that's the, you know, if you just have faith and you work hard enough and you go for it, God's just going to give it to you because you deserve it. That's the prosperity gospel. So those things uh, Daniel touched on were really important. Um, and I think that, you know, we might not see totally how we think that that fits into the ideas of apologetics because what that's talking about is more of a lifestyle. And when we think of uh, apologetics, we think more of our mind and how we defend our faith with reason. So, um, and that's why our definition was even the systematic use of reason to defend our faith. So, so how does that fit in? Well, um, let's see. Evan, Evan taught us just how hard it is to engage in the dialogue and the systematic use of reason to defend our faith. And he gave some really good examples. Now, what did he describe for that kind of faith where all of a sudden we think we've been there, done that, we've done it all, we've taken care of it, we've, we've got the reasons figured out, we've got the argument figured out, and now we've led somebody to the Lord before. And, well, okay, so I can check that one off my list. What, what was that kind, of, that kind of use of apologetics and faith that he described? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? All right, what you got? I'm just guessing like a self-sufficient sort of, I don't know. I don't know a technical name for it. That was just a guess. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right, you are the brave soul with the only answer. So you get a Bible. That's exactly right. Self-sufficient. I mean, he, he described it as a Boy Scout badge type of faith where we think we can earn it, we basically earn our way into, we figure out these arguments correctly, and we know how to reason well, and then we kind of check it off, and we, and we don't continue to really struggle in our inner being, in our spirit, to figure out what is the Lord saying in this situation. And so, so we end up relying on past arguments that, we might not, that might not really be of any use to the person at the time in that particular conversation. So that was a great point from Evan. Um, all right, we've got several more prizes here. Let me give, let's give one more away before we get into the problem with apologetics today. Um, so Joe brought out the theological hammer. He dropped it, and he shared these amazing proofs with us. Really, really good arguments for defending our faith and how we can dig into these ideas and struggle with them and dialogue with each other about them so that we can you know, bring those to bear in our conversations every day. So what were those four proofs that Joe Kirkendall focused in on? Cosmological, design, moral, and experience. You got it. Nice which work. Is, which, which is four of many. What's that? Which is just four of many. Just four of many. These are four that Joe keyed in on. So there you go. Four of many. <laughs> All right. So... All of those were definitely ideas that uh, are nothing new under the you know there's nothing new under the sun. So people for hundreds of years have been talking about those ideas, and Joe really brought those out in a way that's relevant for us today. 
He helped us to, to understand those ideas so that we could engage in some conversation in our lives with our friends and people we meet. But, but I, here's, a, here's a little problem that I found as I was just thinking and struggling with what to share today is that, you know, when I typed in, I simply typed in apologetics, one word, into the Google machine. And guess how many results I get? Come on, not 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5,010,000 results, just like that. They're uh, all in English. They're all from our country. 5 million results. And do you think for a second that people in our country are not thinking about apologetics? I mean, we've got more books on apologetics now than ever, and it just continues to increase and multiply rapidly. We've got more websites, more journals, more people speaking on it, more universities. Just about every seminary and Bible school you can think of today has a program called apologetics, a whole degree set aside so that you can defend your faith. So it's commonplace. This is actually, you know... Now, we might not practice those ideas every day in defending our faith, but the information's out there so, so that we can have a systematic use of reason, so that we can struggle with the ideas and know some of the most important ideas. So, so the problem isn't that we're doing apologetics, that we're defending our faith. The problem might be that we're what? What's that? Apathetic? Yeah, I think that's a great, a great way to put it. We're apathetic because we end up setting aside the practice of our faith in order to defend our faith with words. And so there's this idea that we can become addicted to analysis. And I would say that's the main problem with apologetics today is that we've got our, even our Bible schools and seminaries, I mean, I can say this because uh, I'm in seminary right now, and, and one of the problems we often talk about is that we do too much talking and not applying and practicing the things we're learning in class. So um, a lot of seminaries know this and struggle with it, but it's part of our culture. It's part of, since the Enlightenment, uh, we've become addicted to analysis. So, um, you know, we had, we had this idea come about that reason that humans could reason their ways to enlightenment. And somehow that really goes right in the face of what God has to say throughout his scripture. Reason is important. Uh, Everything that we do with apologetics to learn how to defend our faith is important. But what if we do those things to the exclusion of living out the lifestyle that those arguments talk about? So, so instead of having this addiction to analysis, addiction to books, addiction to these conversations where we're defending ourselves constantly, how about, along with those things, we go ahead and live out our life? So, that's the main problem we're going to hit on today. And I think that Scripture has some really important things to say about 
what we can do is an alternative to this addiction to analysis. And, and so we're going to talk about those. All right. So this is, I'll read you a quote from Wolstersdorf, who says, he asked this question, I think it's really important. He says, why does the Christian worldview remain so disembodied in spite of the fact that so many in our society count themselves as Christians? I'll say that again. Why does the Christian worldview remain so disembodied in spite of the fact that so many in our society count themselves as Christians? And then he goes on to say that Christians in general fail to perceive the radical comprehensiveness of the biblical worldview. So, how would you summarize that? I would just say, Christianity today is disembodied. It's disembodied. It's a lot, it's a lot of ideas in a lot of ways. Now, for sure we want to honor the people that are faithful and, and going, you know, humbling themselves before the Lord. And we all get to do this in one extent or the other. But let's face it, the Lord gives us the power and grace to do that. And we probably aren't doing that enough. So, so how can we combat that? Well, maybe... Maybe it's because some of our, maybe we have to admit and just start at the point of admitting that the worldviews that we've built and gained from the period of enlightenment up until today, allowing ourselves to rely on reason maybe instead of grace, allowing ourselves to rely on our own strength, allowing ourselves to rely on scientific arguments to defend the faith when, uh, you know, faith is... The, the whole idea of our faith, of the Christian gospel, is faith seeking understanding, not understanding seeking faith. We don't just get it first, but Jesus impacts us. He comes and he connects with us in this major way that shakes our world to the point where we surrender to the Lord. So, so if we start with understanding, and if we start with the idea of systematically defending our faith, uh, with others, we we're forgetting how God originally changed us. He personally came and impacted us with the power of the gospel to change our lives. So, alright, so that's an issue that we have in the culture today. Now, so, so what's an alternative that we could have to this addiction to analysis? Um, and I would say that one of the things, <laughs> thanks man, one of the things that we can do is is think of an alternative, uh, instead of in terms of worldview, we can think of in terms of culture making. So, Andy Crouch does a great job of describing this idea, but, um, you know, if we think of apologetics in terms of culture instead of merely worldview, then all of a sudden, it, it puts it into the realm of people, and artifacts, and creativity, and things we build, and things we bring to the world, and our mark on the world. Whereas, if we continue to just think of worldview, we're just thinking of reasons to defend the faith. And so, an apologetic, when we add this idea that we're culture makers, and that we bring things into the world, and that we impact people, then all of a sudden, our apologetic becomes embodied. So, we'll dig into that. That's, that's a that's what we're going to talk about the rest of today. And, and I think that this really, this is no condemnation of, of using reason to defend our faith. 
we still need to, again, we still need that. That's incredibly important. And we heard how, how important that was the last three weeks. But if we do that because we become addicted to reason and analysis by thinking about worldviews and defending worldviews, then we all of a sudden we exclude what I would say is just as important, if not more important, and that's the lifestyle of living out our faith. Okay, so when we think of worldview, there's, there's a, a lot of people, this is what I would think of when I think of worldview. One is condemning culture. So some culture needs to be condemned, right? Give me, give me an example of some aspect of, of our culture that, needs to, that we need to condemn. Prostitution, exactly. That's a huge industry, huge industry in our country and around the world and absolutely must be condemned. Absolutely. What's, what's another one? Instant gratification, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, especially for our culture because we're so individualistic and consumer-minded. So we do want instant gratification with everything. So, so you can see there's, obviously, we could go into a huge list. There are so many things that we need to condemn in our culture. And worldview, when we think about apologetics also, a lot of that, a lot of the apologetics is this condemnation of certain aspects of our culture um, from a scriptural or biblical standpoint. So it's saying it shows what the Bible, what God has to say about things in culture that we should condemn. Okay, so another level or another part of that worldview and apologetics is critiquing. So it's a little bit more subtle, you know, but, but what's something maybe in, in our culture that we should be critiquing as followers of Jesus? The idea of success, that's great. Okay, so, so some ideas of success that we hear in this world are wrong. We need to look at it from a more biblical perspective. And we need to figure out, okay, success is not determined or maybe valued or measured by results as much as it should be by obedience or faith, which is how the Bible looks at success. Like living a successful life in God's eyes might be, look more like being humble and faithful and not necessarily producing so many results. It's an obedience orientation. Okay, so that's a great, that's a great example there of things in, something in culture that we might want to critique. Um, then we can go ahead, and there's this level of worldview that we copy things. So, so a lot of times in defense of our faith, we'll copy great ideas from the world, and we'll use those things. Um, maybe in culture, we copy certain artists. We copy certain food. We copy certain ideas. Um, so what's something that we might have copied that Christians have taken on? Uh, that, that it's that's just a, you know, it's great. It may be a great use of culture. Maybe nothing wrong with it at all. Music. All right. And so in what way is music, the way we've copied music, in what way is that good? There you go. So he's describing, for those who couldn't hear, um, maybe the tone, the style, the way that we do music today, that if Christians, uh, followers of Jesus, have copied that a lot and, and kind of um, 
and they've, they've brought their own goodness, their own creativity, their own cultivation of their gift of being musically talented that they've got from the Lord, and they've turned it into something beautiful. Um, and for sure, we can take that to the extreme, right? Like, we've separated ourselves in the music industry as well, and totally ran away from culture, and we created a whole different Christian music industry, um, and kind of now it came out of that stream of fundamentalism that happened, you know, in the past hundred years. So, so we've actually separated ourselves too much in some stances. But now you can see we've actually come almost full circle. I'm sh- we're not there quite yet because we still have a lot of these weird se- sacred secular divides going on in music and art and all these other expressions of culture. But, but you can see now where people are. There's all these independent movements and grassroots movements of music where people are not being driven by an industry, by a Christian music industry that's separate, but actually have gone on their own to bring their art to the world and their message. Um, and, and it's actually now changing the industry and it's bringing that Christian music industry full circle. So that's a powerful way that we've, we've learned to, to not copy in a bad way, but necessarily we've taken some good out of that from other music. Um, okay, then finally we can consume. We consume culture. So, so in what ways, um, may, and you can, this can be a positive or negative example, or neutral, do we end up consuming culture? Say again. TV. Great example. All right, so TV, movies, books, we consume these things. And obviously we can think about this from a perspective of Jesus' followers where, where this is really bad. Um, we don't have to go into all the details, but immediately things come to mind that we consume things in our culture that are not good, that are not healthy, that we should not be doing. We should not be consuming. Um, there are other things in our culture we consume that are very good and useful and encouraging for our lives. So, so if we look at all these things uh, from a perspective of worldview, we can see how we condemn and how we can treat, c- critique, how we consume, how, how we copy certain things in culture and how that's affected our lives as believers. But, but I would say that there's something that's way more powerful than the analysis of all these things and engaging culture in these ways. And Andy Crouch really has, has brought these ideas uh, forward in a new way, but, but these ideas have been around for, you know, since time began. And that is, um, it really, it's God's idea of, of being creators and being cultivators. And so, um, instead of thinking oursel- of ourselves as followers of Jesus who defend our faith through systematic use of reason only, I think that's good. I think that's half the equation. We should also think of ourselves as culture makers, which means we're creators and we're cultivators. So there's two powerful ideas right there as culture making. So not only are we apologists, but we're culture makers. And, and analysis might lead us to a lot of those other activities I just described. But analysis can never lead us to creativity and to cultivation. And so there's a powerful scripture in the Bible. I don't know if we can put this up here from, from Genesis, but we think of this as the cultural mandate. If, you've, if any of you took perspectives, you know this. Um, you know, we, we read about that all the time and hear about this idea that as believers in our faith, we have a cultural mandate. 
and it, and it happens right in the first book of our Bible. And so Genesis 127 and 128 are these passages. Do we have them up there? All right, how about somebody just read those to us? Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Where's the mic? Ah, we have it. All right. So, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, in this verse alone, we hear created three times. Now, these books that I just gave out for gifts, the books of the Bible, they take out the verse, they take out the chapter, they take out the artificial distinctions and headings, and they leave us the Bible as a story, as it was written. And so if you take those things out and you're reading this, you think, how, how in this time did people emphasize certain ideas when Scripture didn't have, you know, these artificial distinctions to set them off as new ideas? Yeah, they repeated things. It was poetic. They repeated they emphasize things by sharing ideas to get an end. So you hear created three times in this one verse. And we know this is a powerful, a powerful idea that God is bringing forth in his scripture that, in, that has to do with the image of God. So, so if he's creating us in his image and he's emphasizing this idea of creation three times in the verse that talks about us being in his image, then there's something that he's trying to say about his image as a creator. So he is the creator. We're created in his image. Therefore, there's something about that creativity that we receive as part of his image. All right, so this whole cultural mandate, let's go to the next verse, 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here's our cultural mandate. This is, a, this is a powerful idea for us because this is the first charge that we get as humanity from God. And, and as, as a cultural mandate, as we get to receive this in the image of God as creators, our understanding is that we're taking what God has made, what he's created, in his, and he's, he's created the birds, he's created the land, he's created the seed, the world and everything in it. And we get to then rule and subdue, subdue it, we get to increase in it, and we get to fill it. So what are the things that we fill it with? What have we filled it with? Everything we can see, everything. It's either been created by God, or it's in, it's in its raw state of nature, or it's been cultivated by us. And so that is what culture is. That is the whole idea, the whole definition of culture is that we are making culture. We are making culture through creativity and through cultivating what God has already given to us. So this is an, a powerful charge because if we just focus in apologetics on analysis, and all these other things that we can do, like critiquing and condemning and copying and building culture, we're, we're really not bringing the fullness of the image of God that he's given us into this world by creating things. 
So we bring, our cultural mandate is to actually create. And so you think about it like this. People that have been impacted by the power of the gospel in their lives, and they're transformed. And they're totally transformed. And they start bringing ideas. They're bringing old, new treasures out with the old. They're going through God's word. It's impacted them that personally. And they're, and they're changing and shaping the ideas that have been around forever, God's ideas, into something new and fresh for us. And it impacts us. Um, you know, we've, we've experienced this in our lives as followers of Jesus. If we remember those times when Jesus has spoken to us personally, and we've heard him, and he's moved us, and we've spent those times in prayer, and he's changed our lives. Maybe, you know, for me, uh, there's so many, go on and on and on, but uh, he healed my leg in the past year. I hadn't run for over six months, and he miraculously healed me. Another time, he spoke a word to me and just said, you're my son, my beloved. I love you so much, Matthew. You know, and you hear, you have these moments with the Lord, and you're just changed. And so then you bring something out of that to the world, because this, this image in you is affirmed, this being made in the image of God, and all of a sudden you're creative again. You're fun. You bring out, you bring out something new and fresh. It's like new wine, uh, taking God's ideas and making them like treasure. And so if you think about those people in our own lives who've impacted us in that way, who would we la- rather listen to? If somebody's giving an argument, if somebody's defending the faith and being an apologist, would we rather listen to that person that's condemning things all the time in culture? Or that's critiquing them? Or that simply copies what's out there? Or maybe even consumes it? Just, yeah, man, this person, they're a great friend, they're funny to be around, but, dude, all I do, I mean, we just go to the movies all the time. Like, that's what we do when we hang out. We go to the movies and we consume, and we consume, and we consume. But what about the person that's transformed by the power of the gospel? And they're bringing out ideas and challenging you with new ideas and bringing out new treasures from the old in God's word and living their lives in such a way like the $5 missions crew that they've just been impacted by the power of the gospel and they want to go serve. When they have something to say about condemning culture or critiquing it, we listen to it. We listen to it because they've, we see the transformation in their hearts. We see the transformation in their minds that God has impacted them with the gospel. And so these are the kind of people that we want to be. We want to be creators and cultivators in our lives. And that will free, open the doors, and unlock the power of the gospel in people's lives like no other when we do have good arguments to defend our faith. Because they will see both the power and the wisdom of God. All right. So, so this is, you know, this, uh, these aren't just great ideas <laughs> that, that are, um, you know, people write books about. But this is, this is God's word. And this is something that is through and through his scripture. So we're going to go dig into this a little bit. Um, because we need a vision, a biblical vision of what this culture making looks like. And so um, let me give one more of these gifts away here. What, what? does culture begin with and end with in our scripture, in the books of the Bible? Two places.
beginning and ending. So I'm talking Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. What do we, what do we begin and we end with? Okay, what, what do we begin in, in terms of culture? So culture being whatever's created, so what God created, or what, we, what he's cultivated or what we cultivate. So what, what was given at the beginning and what is given at the end? Uh-huh. Excellent. All right, and what are the two pictures we get? Because they give a very clear picture of what that beginning and that ending is. The new heaven and the new earth, and then the original heaven on earth. What were those two pictures? And where was man with God? In the garden. And where at the end, what comes out of heaven? Comes down out of heaven, Zion, the holy city. Nice work. So you got, so these are, these are places, if we look at the garden, we already see that God not only was a creator, but cultivator. He, he created in such a way that he made something beautiful into a garden. So he had created and cultivated at the same time. And then if we look at the end in Revelation 21 and 22, the city of God, the holy city, Zion com- says comes down out of heaven. So the city wasn't something that humans created. It was given as a gift by God. And so if we look at, a lot of times people condemn so much what is going on in our cities today, and yet a city is exactly what God values and gives to us as the new heaven on earth. And it doesn't, it doesn't exist in this far-off place that's, that's just distant and gone and that we don't understand but he actually sends he says it comes down out of heaven to the earth this new city the 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 holy city the new jerusalem so he even describes it as a marriage so there's this marriage of the bride of christ who's already in heaven with him coming down out of heaven in this city and marrying what we're doing here on earth so so when we when we look forward to our resurrection bodies, when we look forward to the end, to when all things are made new, we don't just get pulled off into some other place. And it's like angels sitting around on clouds singing to us. We actually have a city with all of culture, with all of people and humanity, with actually the garden originally, the original garden in it, the tree of life that ended up being uprooted and put at the east end of the garden and who God had to protect us from because we were trying to decide things on our own. And he actually redeems that and brings the tree of life into this city where leaves of healing are made to heal the nations. The nations, the ta, ethne in the Greek. And the nations are everyone, every person, every culture, every cultural people group that he ever created, dreamed of, and imagined will be there celebrating with us. And so, so this idea of culture makers and culture cultivators creativity, all these things that we do with our lives, whether we're making maps for Operation World, like Brian does, and he does a darn good job of it, or whether we're making music, like his fiance does, or whether we're a business-minded person who's dreaming up a new business that's going to create some kind of product that's a blessing for somebody. Whatever that is in our culture, those things don't just go away in the end. We get, those things get taken into this holy city. 
so let's look at that because I want to give a strong um, appeal to Scripture and to what we should be doing in terms of thinking about the world around us and how we can live out this apologetic. So let's put up... uh, Well, let's talk about these. So we talked about a little bit... So reading, movies, those kind of things in culture. We talked about music. um, But some powerful ideas here. We, we have to acknowledge the fact that things are still bad in our culture. So, so some of these things are going to be um, renewed. And Jesus says that, that he's going to make all things new. Uh, he repeats that and affirms that in the book of Revelation. But some things are just so wrong in our culture that we bring forth out of our sinfulness, out of our sinful nature, that they can't exist in that holy city, in that new Jerusalem, without being totally transformed. Totally transformed. Some things have to be totally transformed. So we get that picture in Isaiah. And early on in the first couple chapters, Isaiah talks about these, these things, these weapons of war being beaten and transformed like into plowshares. So this image harkens back to the first chapter of Genesis. When you have a plowshare, when you have these tools, these instruments for gardening, for cultivating God's creation. He's, he's telling us, even these things that you've done wrong, that you've done sinfully and brought into the world, even the, the expression of the sinful nature that ends up in weapons of warfare are going to be transformed, beaten down and transformed into instruments of cultivation, of gardening, of life, of life-giving things. And then those things are going to be brought in to the new city. So there's a couple passages. Let's look at, let's throw up Isaiah 60 and see just what, this is Isaiah's vision, the same, similar to what John gets for the book of Revelation, where, where he's seeing what happens in this holy city. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nations, the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. The pine, the fir, the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary. And I will glorify the place of my feet. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. Okay, let's go to Revelation now. Now these are pictures. We've seen artifacts of the world. We've seen creation of the world. We've seen people of the world all be brought in to this holy city. Now Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, for us, for those still on the earth, for those who, where the marriage ceremony will happen here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Okay. So this is a powerful imagery here. We have both from Isaiah and John of what this new city is going to look like. And in this place, Things are either renewed and restored to their original intention of creation or they're totally transformed and brought into the city. So even a lot of the things that we think we're bringing into this world by our own strength, which means our own sinfulness, that we think are good, end up having to be transformed because they end up serving as instruments of unrighteousness. But it's a gift from God. Not only the garden, not only creation, everything that God has given us, but this new city that comes out of heaven and, and marries us on earth. This is the most intimate picture of what God wants to do with all of culture throughout history. And because he's made us in his image to be creators, we bring these things to the world. So if we begin thinking of everything we do in this world as creators and cultivators, because we think of it in terms of it where it's going to go, the end of things. Is this eternal? Is God going to have to transform this thing I'm doing? Or is this something that he's inspired me to do in his image and I'm actually bringing something good into this world? And we do that. We get to do that every day. All right, so, so we, focused, we, we could focus on those things that are artifacts of the culture, you know, the, the cypress trees and these other things that we make into temples. And, but we've only got a few minutes and I want to really focus in the last few minutes here on the most important thing of all that is brought into the city and that's the people and that's all nations we read it's every single people group it's every single person um, that God determines you know in Matthew 13 he has this parable about separating the sheep and the goats and so God in his sovereign plan determines he knows our hearts he sees our hearts men women we do not see hearts like God does. And so he determines this. But he promises us that every single nation will be represented there. And so as an apologetic that's embodied uh, in terms of thinking of bringing, actually doing something and being a certain way, living a certain way, the greatest apologetic of all is how we can be like Jesus in Philippians 2 and we have how we can lay down our lives for others and serve people so that when we do have anything to condemn or to critique or to copy, that we actually have a voice to do it. And, and so we have some, uh, one of my favorite verses in scriptures, Acts 10, 37, 38. And, and this idea from Peter's speech in Acts is, is what Jesus did. He's summarizing the power of the gospel that was expressed through the power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus Christ. And so, he says that you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. So, 
what, what we're doing here today is we're prioritizing things in the kingdom. So there's a priority at some level for using a systematic, reasoned defense of our faith. But there's also a priority that God gives us in the kingdom for walking empowered by the Holy Spirit, laying our lives down to serve others who are oppressed and doing good. And I'm not going to tell you, you know, one's better than the other. Those things, those things sometimes result in each other. But um, it's pretty obvious when we think about it. If we look at somebody's life who's been affected and transformed by the power of the gospel, we listen to that person's reason defense. If we look at a life who just has reason defense and doesn't walk like this in the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't walk or care to walk like Jesus does, we could care less what their words have to say. We really could. They may as well not read another book on apologetics or think about that the rest of their life because people are not going to listen to them. Right? So, so what do we do? How do we do that? Well, there's, there's some resources to live, to live an embodied apologetic. And I would say that, that the greatest resource of all is Jesus Christ. And, and we have we have to be transformed by his presence in our lives. Um, we, can, we can have wisdom, uh, and we can have power. So 1 Corinthians has some, some amazing things to say about this. We'll read from chapter 1. It says, Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than in human strength. If we do not walk empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are walking in human wisdom. If we do not walk empowered by the Holy Spirit in relationship with Jesus Christ, we are walking in human strength. So, the only way to live an embodied, embodied apologetic is to walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and as we do this, he will identify the treasures that he has given us in his kingdom, which he treasures one thing above all else, above all else that he created. And that's those he created in his image. So today as we leave, I want us to, before we close in prayer, we'll just take a moment of silence and we'll think about who has God put in our lives. God called 12 disciples. God spent a really, really intimate amount of time with three of those disciples in particular. He didn't go out there and try to have a big idea that would change the world. He didn't go out there and try to write a book about it. He didn't try to get on stage and, you know, whatever. He didn't go around um, constantly condemning and critiquing culture. He did sometimes, but more often than not, what did he do? He opened his eyes to the people around him. He loved them and he served them well. And so let's ask God together, as an embodied apologetic, who can I serve today? Who has God put in my immediate life? Who has God put in my circle of influence that I am called to love 
and lay my life down for. Philippians 2 is a great image in Scripture to to meditate on this. This idea that, that we can actually lay down our lives for others. Or to live. Not just to die for Christ, but to live for Christ. To live in such a self-sacrificial way that we would humble ourselves and know that God has given us everything that's good in this world to us as a gift. And so, let's just take one minute to think on this, and then I'll close this in prayer. God, please just uh, direct our hearts and minds towards your treasures, towards the apple of your eye, towards your people, God, that you created in your image. We just... God, as we take this moment of silence, we ask that you clearly identify them to us. God, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've called us sons and daughters. God, we thank you that, Lord, you created all. That all honor and glory and praise is to you. God, that we can take no credit for good things, but that we get to rejoice in the goodness that we experience because of your relationship with us. And God, I do pray that every one of us would have opportunities to defend our faith. I do pray that every one of us would have opportunities to use our minds and not commit intellectual suicide as believers. I do pray that, God, we would have a reasoned faith. And God, I pray that we would also walk like Jesus did, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and freeing those oppressed of the devil. God, I pray that we would take up this calling on our lives to, to serve others, to live a life of thankfulness and gratefulness. And God, these people that you've just highlighted in our lives, these treasures, God, I pray that you would empower us all now, God, as your family, as your sons and daughters. You say that we ask you simply for a good gift, Father, and, and you will give it. You'll lavish it on us. You'll lavish the power of the Holy Spirit on us. And so we ask for that, Lord, that you would change our lives right now. There's nothing we can do to earn your love. We just receive it. We hold out our hands like children and receive the gift of the presence and power of Jesus and your Holy Spirit in our lives, God. That we could go about our day loving and serving the people, the treasures that you've highlighted to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. I loved being with you today. So good.